When Neanderthals and the weaker Homo sapiens found themselves in the same environment 50,000 or so years ago, Neanderthals went extinct, but we survived. And that higher cognition may have made all the difference. In the complex technological world we've created, cognition, problem solving, becomes more and more important for our continued existence, so we come to depend on it as if it were infallible. But that strategy often gives an illusory sense of control that fails us in moments of crisis. Its stepwise linearity is no match for nonlinear dynamic systems, which can behave in turbulent, unpredictable ways, making quantum leaps as they rapidly change their nature. At the moment of truth that defines survivors, and if reason is the only tool at your disposal, you are likely to achieve what David Ruel, a Belgian physicist and one of the founders of chaos theory, referred to as the steady state of death. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lycos Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Marcy, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Matt. Hello, Matt. Hello, Trevor. The fact that we can start off talking about chaos theory and Ian Malcolm is fantastic. <laughs> I am so glad that our very first talk is going to be about Jeff Goldblum, where, you know, life uh, uh, finds a way. <laughs> in, in actuality, what we're talking about today is the book Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And this book is incredible. I mean, the the recommendation on the front cover is from Sebastian Younger, if that's not enough to convince you right now to go out and buy this book before we even start talking about it. Matt, what did you think about the book? This book distills all of our conversations, all of our experience from the the medical description of what a, a fear or survival response is to the, the difference. <laughs> I mean... It brings chaos theory. In from, from the very it's kind of irritating. It is. It's like we read this book. Oh, this is just everything that we're going to talk yeah. about. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, and and it, it talks about the, the difference between preparation in the mind, preparation in terms of the skill sets and tools, which are things that we've been working on from the very beginning in this podcast. It, and it annoyingly brings up the same stories. It He'll describe working with a survival expert teaching eight-year-olds. And he's like, the example he used was a, a variation of Jack London's to build a fire. I'm like, really? Really? That's where we're going with this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and everything along the way, it's it's like, oh, this, this is a theme that we've seen before. But he distills it down in such a fantastic way uh, with just a, a reporter's eye and pen. It makes it super readable. You don't have to be a medical professional to get it, but also just great, great writing. I feel I think this book is what's so great about it is that it does do that distillation, but it's the practical advice that it gives you, the anecdotal stories that it provides as evidence, and then all of the medicine and science that it uses to back those up. It's really the full presentation of I think in our in our culture and especially in the outdoor community, we talk a lot about surviving and survival. And you and I have discussed the difference between surviving and thriving in an outdoor environment. But this is what survival is actually like based on studies of, of situations that have occurred where people lived and died in extreme situations. And all the people that have, you know, an interest in, say, bushcraft or survival that 
place those skills as a, as a higher emphasis above, um, above just, you know, general outdoors skills and, and the lifestyle, things like that. I think this does a great job of addressing, okay, well, that's the theory. You know, it's like, it reminds me of back in the nineties when it, like there were a bunch of different martial arts out there and it was all so stylized. If you look at action movies from the nineties and you look at the fight scenes, it's all very herky jerky and not at all realistic because it was this notion of what fighting was like. And then MMA came out, the UFC came out and real fighting actually started taking place where people were comparing different styles of martial arts and well, lo and behold, jujitsu was the best, but that's a separate topic of conversation. <laughs> um, but, but people got to see what actual fighting was like. And I think that that's what this book is for survival. This is what survival is actually like, not the passed down bullshit that you hear from so many so-called experts. So he takes deep dives into half a dozen case studies and breaks them down you know, literally what happened beginning to end, but throughout that says, this is what's going on in the brain. This is what's going on in their thought process. This is why. These are why those decisions were made. It's not because they made the wrong decision. It's because they didn't have the, the mental capacity, the toolbox to make a better decision. Or everything their brain was telling them was telling them to do it the wrong way. Because they didn't know. It, it, it's that that classic question of what were they thinking? And the answer is they weren't. They were feeling their way through that situation. And oftentimes they felt themselves to that that steady state of death made sense at the time. Yeah. But it actually didn't. And so that's, that's what the value of this book is that if you have any interest in learning how to prepare yourself mentally for a potential disaster situation or a survival situation, this book is a critical resource because of those anecdotal experiences, because of the, the case studies that he goes into and the breakdown that he gives of what you need to do if you want to live. It, and it comes down to a lot of the, the reasons why people make bad decisions, even when they have the right tools with them, when they have the appropriate capabilities, is that they've created a mental map for themselves and they continue to tell themselves a lie based on their thoughts or their plans. A, a plan is just a projection into the future. And the problem is that becomes a future memory. You've told yourself how it's going to go, so you believe that that is the only way it can go, even when the rest of the world is telling you, stop, pump yeah. the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> that is not how things are working and out. And we're, we're really going to dive into that when we when we discuss uh, what he talks about when it's like when you get lost yeah. in the woods. But I want to start with, we have mentioned the phrase catecholamine dump a lot on this podcast. And... I think he does an excellent job of summing up what that is on a on a chemical level in the body. So this is what he says to kind of to get us started about what it's going to be like. You're in a situation, you're afraid. Okay, well, physiologically, what does that mean? He says, during a fear reaction, the amygdala, in concert with numerous other structures in the brain and the body, help to trigger a staggeringly complex sequence of events all aimed at producing a behavior to promote survival. Freezing in place, for example, followed by running away. When the reaction begins, neural networks are activated 
and numerous chemical compounds are released and move throughout the brain and body. The most well-known among them is the so-called adrenaline rush. Adrenaline is the trade name for epinephrine. Epinephrine and norepinephrine, which come from the adrenal glands, are in a class of compounds called catecholamines, which have a wide range of effects, including constricting blood vessels and exciting or inhibiting the firing of nerve cells and the contraction of smooth muscle fibers. Cortisol, which is also released from the adrenal cortex, also amps up fear, among its other effects. The net result of all the chemicals that come streaming through your system once the amygdala has detected danger is that the heart rate rises, breathing speeds up, more sugar is dumped into the metabolic system, and the distribution of oxygen and nutrients shifts so that you have the strength to run or fight. You're on afterburner. This is not a think moment. This is a feel moment. This is, you don't have to think about this happening. It just happens. And it's the same idea of the startle reflex. It's just your body's natural response. And it happens faster than you can even think about it happening. It, it, has, it has started in the same way that you're startled. When you see that you're at home and you are startled by your wife or partner or friend walking around the corner. You're at home in a safe place. You know the only person there is someone that you are intimately familiar with. Yet your body startles. That's because you have that jolt of catecholamine, that jolt of epinephrine. And that is, at the most basic level, just the, the start of that fight or flight response, that sympathetic nervous system response. And that you immediately recognize, by the time you have a chance to think about what's happening, you recognize that person and, oh, that's my wife. No problem. That's my friend. But your heart's still going 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Because you, you're starting to dial back that catecholamine. And you, that's not something you can control in that moment. There are some people that have a, a little bit more of a, a blunted response to that. They can stay a little bit on the, the cooler side. But this is pure physiology. Like the, the mountain lion. It has too much nature. So I think that's an excellent... That is an excellent model for describing exactly what's happening in the brain. You essentially have this parallel processing where the, the older parts of the brain, which include the amygdala, are set up to have that startle response. And then you having that realization, like as you said, when you stop and think about it and realize, oh, that shadow that I'm seeing is actually my wife or my husband or my dog, whatever the case may be, that's your higher levels of cognition. That's called top-down processing where it's putting a damper on the fear response. Same thing where if you're walking through the woods and all of a sudden you get a jolt and a startle response because you see something out of the corner of your eye and then you really, oh no, wait, that's a stick. That's not a snake. Exact same thing. Your mind has to catch, you, the person, quote unquote, has to catch up with what your body is already reacting to. And so that's the thing is that your brain isn't smart necessarily, but it is effective. Because if it were a snake, you are now primed for action. And that's the important piece because our ancestors that did not do that didn't become our ancestors. So you can look in uh, different parallels in terms of a, almost like a spinal response. It's that response that comes from, you know, it, 
the, the deep side of the brain. It's not a thinking response. It's a reactive response in cats. So uh, a cat is a pouncing predator. It has an array of antenna on the front of its face. It has all of those uh, small whiskers that come out that are in an area, you know, three, four inches away. When it pounces on an animal, if that chipmunk, if that uh, rabbit is just a little to the left or the right, it will touch that antenna, it will touch that whisker, and the cat will immediately move. That's not a think response. That's the cat is following a, a spinal response from its whisker to its brain to its movement that it didn't have to think about to do. It's just pure reaction. There are some studies out there that have suggested that, I can't remember what the name of the book is, I'll have to look it up, but let's say that you were going to move your arm to, to pick up a coffee cup, for example. The neurons that fire to move to to initiate the movement of your arm towards the coffee cup happen before your thought to pick up the coffee cup which has tremendous implications for things like the concept of free will but it does it does illustrate that there are processes that are going on in the brain all the time that we are not aware of that are responses to the environment based on cues that we may not be consciously aware of it, and it proves that when I get up in the morning to make coffee, it, it, I don't have to think about it. <laughs> my, my body knows that it's best to just make coffee. Oh, yeah. You don't start to thinking until like 20, 30 minutes after your first two cups. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I found so interesting in this book that seemed counterintuitive was the behavior of people in survival situations. This is, again, one of those things where you think that your instincts are going to be right when you're trying to go out in the world and, and if something bad happens, you try to survive. I think he does a great job of showing that that's not really the case, that a lot of times your instincts are wrong. And that like we we're talking about with the brain having two different processes going on, it's easy for your brain to lead you astray. It's easy for your brain to have a mental map of what it expects to see and also to have uh, the burden of your your, your morals, your value judgments, the rules of society on it, and to make decisions based on that. So there's a case study based on uh, lost behavior or uh, lost person behavior. And he talks about this skilled fireman who's in decent shape, who has all the right tools with him. And he doesn't start a fire until the third day of being lost, partially because he knows that he's not supposed to start fires in this part of the the wilderness and he doesn't want to break the rules right he's got hypothermia he's soaked to the bone he he's losing feeling in his feet and and he, he's lost he wants to signal for help he doesn't start a fire because he's a fireman and he doesn't want to break the rules and you would think to yourself what an idiot <laughs> yeah bro <laughs> of course you start a fire dude but the point is that when you are in that situation, contextually, you're paying attention to rules that have become arbitrary. And I think that that's what he's talking about when he goes into this concept of having a mental map of the world. I want to delve into that story because I think that story is so applicable to anybody that has spent time in the backcountry, especially people who have done land navigation exercises, people that have been, let's not say lost, but... <laughs> Bewildered for a certain amount of time. Uh, 
we we both have a, a variation on that statement. My scoutmaster growing up used to say, lost, never been lost, powerfully confused for a few days at a time. <laughs> yeah. And then it, you have the, I think the quote that's. I think it's Daniel Boone. Daniel or, Boone. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I can't admit to ever being lost, but I, I do admit to being bewildered for a period. A might bewildered <laughs> in the Kentucky land. <laughs> <laughs> so that story of the firefighter that, that had all of the stuff with him. It's like he was with a friend. The friend was a, was going a little bit faster than he was. And basically they get separated. A storm comes in. Um, he shelters up for a couple minutes and then waits for the thunder and lightning to pass. Problem was he did not have an accurate representation of the topography in his head. He was not checking his map as they were going along. And so he wasn't exactly sure where they were, even though he had a map with him. And he gets to this point where he's talking about he's trying to get to a summit because that's where he thinks his friend is going to be. It says he was climbing a steep slope that he was sure must be Mount Ida. It just had to be. He'd been walking all day under his heavy pack. He knew he would soon get to head down toward a cool, clear river with a string of jewel-like lakes. He could drink. The perception that he was climbing Mount Ida gave a more settled feeling to the area of his brain that was trying to create a mental map. At last, the hippocampus had something to work with. Kilp could picture Mount Ida and its relationship to his destination, and mental maps are images. Without images, we are lost. The problem is those images aren't always based in reality or truth. Right. But it's easier to follow those, especially when you're following what's basically a reward system. You're going towards safety and then the necessities of life. Warmth, water, food, companionship. I mean, this is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. (laughs) And if he follows his mental map, this picture that's in his mind, he gets all of those things. The problem is his mental map is wrong. And the reason that it's wrong is because, like we said, he was going along, he wasn't checking his map initially, and then he gets a lot of cloud coverage that comes in. He can't really see where he is, and so then he starts climbing uphill, and then he felt that that steep slope that he was on must be Mount Ida because he had been looking at the map and looking at the section that covered Mount Ida and saying, oh, okay, so you know that runs north-south, and then immediately to the east there, there's a river with some lakes. He had a good picture in his head. And by not knowing where he was, what he was trying to do was he was trying to make his mental map match the reality, match the world that was actually around him. And so eager was he to make that happen that he ignored other obvious clues that told him, hey, that's not where you are. I've done this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you have spent time in the backcountry and had to navigate by map and compass, you have done this. I have willed hills into existence. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> it's uh it's really easy to do because you can you can so easily convince yourself. You're like, oh well, that that could be three hundred meters. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I can see that. It's it's the map that's wrong. It's the map that's <laughs> so he he talks about that too. It's called bending the map. Yeah. Um so he says, uh, someone he worked with, Edward Cornell, says, Edward Cornell once told me, whenever you start looking at your map and saying something like, well, that lake could have dried up, 
or that boulder could have moved, a red light should go off. You're trying to make reality conform to your expectations rather than seeing what's there. In the sport of orienteering, they call that bending the map. Yeah. And and when he talked about it, it was like, oh, Fuck, I've done that. <laughs> I, yeah. oh. I felt oh. as like, oh man. I've bent I bent that map real good. <laughs> <laughs> that river just fucking evaporated. It's so strange. Huh? <laughs> I think it's also important to point out one of the things that, that got mentioned in passing here is that he was climbing a steep slope and he'd been walking all day under his heavy pack. He was physically fatigued, and being physically fatigued compromises your ability to think. And frankly, so the, the other interesting thing is that as your body gets more and more tired and as you get sleep deprived and as you get really fatigued, your body starts to pay more attention to reward behaviors. It starts to pay more attention to things that release dopamine in your brain. And what that means is that as long as you're willing to convince yourself of little things like, oh yeah, that hill seems familiar, boom, you get a little dopamine release. Like, yeah, that's right, I'm, I'm lining things up. But in reality, you're fucked. You're off course, but you don't want to admit that because it's it makes more sense to your brain to say to itself, no, this is totally how things are. He talks, or he, he mentions that this is the time where it helps to sit down and take stock of what's going on. <laughs> what, what, what did you say earlier? Uh, I was once told that this is when you smoke your mental cigarette. Yes. And I, I do that sometimes when I'm, I'm teaching wilderness medicine courses where you know, people start to get kind of overloaded with the information that they have. And I often say, you know, the one resource we've got right now is time. Besides threats to life, the ABC, kind of airway breathing circulation problems, a lot of what we can deal with can be dealt with in a few minutes. Or if you sit down and you take a puff on that mental cigarette and you're like, Huh. Well, <laughs> in in taking stock and saying, well, this is where I am. This is truly where I know I am. These are the resources that I have. And this is the problem as I see it. What can I deal with right now? And that is absolutely actionable information. So stepwise, here's what you do. I know it sounds so fucking, I know it sounds so familiar, but take a deep breath. It, stop. Stop. Take a deep breath and then take a step back, but actually physically take a step back from the situation. If you are in a group of people or even if it's like you and one other person, physically remove yourself from where you're standing so that you can see a bigger picture. Even if it's just backing off maybe three or four feet. If you are like setting up your gear and you're in that kind of starting to get a little bit worried mindset, put your bag down, take a deep breath and take a step back from your bag. Look at the trees, look at the sky, look at your bag, and think about the resources you have available to you. And importantly, the ones that you don't. Because the resources that you don't have are just as important for your decision-making process as the ones that you do have. If you don't have a GPS, if you don't have a cell phone, nobody is coming to find you because they can't. They don't know where you are. It is up to you. And recognizing that, I think, is one of the first steps. But this is the critical time where panic might begin to set in. And he talks about panic here. He says, Siratuk was the first search and rescue expert to conduct systematic research on the behavior of people who become lost in the wilderness. 
In Lost Person Behavior, he writes that they tend to panic. Panic usually implies tearing around or thrashing through the brush, but in its earlier stages, it is less frantic. It all starts when they look about and find that a supposedly familiar location now appears totally strange, or when they start to realize that it seems to be taking longer to reach a particular place than they had expected. There is a tendency to hurry to find the right place. Maybe it's just over that little ridge. It's not. Let me just tell you right now, it's not. (laughs) I've I've been over that ridge, and it's not there. (laughs) I've been over that ridge, and then back, and then over the ridge again. I Once in a land navigation problem, I went through the same draw like four times. Crossed, went back, crossed, went back. It took me an hour and a half. It was fucking miserable. And the problem with that is you're expending calories. You're, you're using up energy that you don't have to spend. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. One of the other lessons that I've learned, though, and I think that this is a really important one to, to take on board, is especially in land navigation. Well, so in diving, it's called plan the dive, dive the plan. He makes a mention here in the book about plan the flight, fly the plan, but don't fall in love with the plan. So what's what I learned in land navigation was that it is really, really important to A, sit down and plan everything out before you start moving, and B, follow your plan. Stay on your azimuth, stay on your pace count, and trust the pace count, and trust your azimuth. Because it is really easy at one o'clock in the morning when there's no light to start second-guessing yourself. And and you you just have to trust that you did the work right the first time. But you can trust that if you know that you were in a good state of mind, you were well-fed, and you were well-rested before you started out. It also helps to know how your tools work and be confident in their use. He describes hunters, outdoorsmen, throwing their compasses away because <sighs> they were convinced that they were broken. Yeah. It, it's the, the classic airline pilot who doesn't believe his instruments because he feels that, it's, that they're wrong and then crashes the airplane. It, you have to be so confident in how your tools work and have used them enough that you can trust them. So I've had that weird feeling before where I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. There is no innate sense of direction. You are not a Canada goose. You do not know how to fly home. There are lots of studies that go back to African Bushmen, uh, Pacific Islanders, and they said, oh, they these these people as a group have an innate sense of direction they don't wrong it false not there categorically false they are taught from the youngest of ages how to pick up on subtle landscape clues how to pick up on the movement of birds the placement of the stars in the sun what a landscape looks like and how to follow it how to create a mental map that is based in a real life environment. So their mental maps perfectly mimic what's in reality. And some of that comes from uh, from from birth, being immersed in that environment yeah. and being taught that. There is no innate sense of direction. So and and the the other piece of that is you have to be willing to trust your equipment more than you trust yourself. <laughs> And, and, and that's, that, that is really hard to do. And that trust in the comes from experience. Yeah. So I trust my compass because I've used it for years and I know that it, it always points magnetic north. 
and in understanding its use, you you learn to trust yourself in, in learning to to trust your tools. Because I have had instances where I do try to take that approach where I think of myself, oh, I am fallible. <laughs> when was this? <laughs> you know, I thought I was wrong once. Turns out I was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but where I have those moments out in the woods where I'm looking at my compass and I'm feeling, this especially happens with pace count, yeah. where I think I should be there already and I'm not. And I've been pretty sure that I was staying on my azimuth, but I also make room for the idea that I, maybe I wasn't following my azimuth as perfectly as I thought. And that those are the places where the doubt starts to creep in. Ugh. And because you're thinking, well, where did I go wrong? Was it, is it my pace count that's wrong? Or is it, was it my azimuth? What, am I drifting one degree off course, which over a certain amount of distance can be a very wide berth of where you're supposed to be. And part of the solution to that is making your end objective not a particular hilltop, but like a lake. So that if you do drift to the right or to the left, you can hit exactly where you need to hit, move to that next point, and then shoot your next azimuth from there. But it's also just saying, okay, I'm feeling the doubt. I feel the fear, but let me just continue on. And I think it's important to make notes to make note of places where you can bail out, where you can make deals with yourself and say, okay, I know that if I go another 500 meters, I'm going to hit a river. Like I can't go to my point without crossing a river. Having those backstops is really important. So having backstops and handrails. Yeah. Understanding uh, what the map looks like in reality. And a lot of that comes from just the experience of immersing yourself in that environment and knowing what a map looks like, a topography map, what those features look like on the ground. And having handrails, so saying, well, if I hit this ridge line, if I hit this draw, if I hit this stream, I know that I've veered too far left, right, you know, east, west. But also having those backstops. If I hit this cliff or lake, oh, well, I got to stop and, yeah. and turn and kind of reorient myself. And he, he has these rules of life that his and his, he and his daughter come up with. And the first is be here now. And that's understand where you are in that moment. One of the other rules that is really applicable to navigation is everything takes eight times longer <laughs> than you think it will. Yeah. And we talked about this on backcountry trips that when you were doing a route and destination plan, so kind of planning your day, you'd say, well, we had different times that we'd expect that on-trail travel would take, that off-trail travel would take, and then we would add time for things like group travel, season or weather, elevation gain or loss, and not just up, down too, it takes more time. And, and understanding how that builds into your plan. And which and your plan becomes, again, your plan becomes your mental map. It is a memory of the future. Because you've seen it that way, you expect it to happen that way. And when things deviate, when you recognize it, you have to say, well, this is reality. I have to be here now, not what I think it should be or should have been. What I want it to be. You know where you know where this hits me the most. I think in like a practical day to day is is time estimates or when I'm going to be late to something. If somebody asks me how long are you going to, how long is it going to be until you get there, I always give them the answer of how long I want it to take. 
before I'll, I get there. I'll, I'll be there five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you're, you, you haven't even got out even, of bed yet. Yeah, you haven't got out of bed yet. What are you talking about? <laughs> but that's a great place where you can see your It's so easy for your mind to make that little leap where it's like, oh, yeah, no, 10 minutes. I can totally make that in 10 minutes. That's how long you want it to take. In reality, it's going to take you probably 20 or 30 uh, minutes. I, mean, I always double time estimates. I'm going to be out of here in like 15. Yeah. <laughs> I have children and a farm. I might see you Wednesday. <laughs> that is a much more realistic appraisal. But again, it's the brain trying to make that that model, trying to make that mental map match what it wants, not what the world actually is. Based on chemical reward. Yeah. So, so talking about the brain and, and the underlying pieces here, he goes into it. He says, O'Keefe, which is a researcher, more or less accidentally found what he called place cells in the rat hippocampus. I love this. Place cells are individual neurons that get mapped to fire when the animal is at a specific place. Normally, hippocampal cells fire perhaps only once every second on average. But at the mapped place, they fire hundreds of times faster. In tests with monkeys at the University of Oxford, cells were found that fired only when the animal was looking at a certain view. A single cell can map more than one place. That's so cool. That's so cool. And and it I mean it does a great job of highlighting how the brain actually works and that it's a a synthesis of many different cells in many different areas all lighting up at the same time. It's like boom, that particular distribution is that place. The same cells can be used in a different distribution and it's like oh that's that place. I mean it's incredibly efficient as far as how the brain works, but it also is a great explanation. So he goes on to, to talk about how he says the hippocampus is associated with memory and the maps appear to be stored in the same way as memory. You create not just routes, but maps of areas of your environment, such as a room, your house, or your whole neighborhood. Many people find, for example, that they can easily navigate around their own bedroom or even large parts of their house without the lights on because the mental map in their brain matches the real world. Blind people often get around just fine because they have excellent mental maps. Place cells in rats fire in the dark, but stress interferes with the work of the hippocampus, making it harder to make and revise your mental maps. So when you're lost and stressed, you not only can't access them as well, but you're making faulty maps. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're trying to update maps and you're updating them wrongly. Yeah, you're, you're updating them incorrectly. <laughs> so, but back to cultures that have this innate sense of direction, they're making these maps from childhood and not of their room or their house, their entire environment. And they have that sense of direction because their maps are so detailed and so huge. And so we've talked about, well, we, we just talked about navigation with map and compass. He describes uh, going to survival school in Brattleboro, Vermont, where um, he says it's, it's more of a like old school survival, not like a, a military survival. This is more like a, almost like a Native American or indigenous, you know, one with nature survival. And it's a lot of it's with kids, like eight, nine, 10 year olds. And he goes with this, he, he says it's kind of hokey at first. Like He's like, oh, great, you know, we're going to feel our way through the woods. But the reality is that they, he goes on a walk with the instructor. 
and they go deep into the woods, no trails. And as they're going, he's, you know, he stops every once in a while and teaches them about this plant or they, they look at this item on the ground or they look at this animal sign and they get into the woods and he turns to him and his partner, it's his photographer and his uh, journalism career. He says, all right, bring us back. He says, I, I can't do that. We're in the middle of the woods. We're lost. <laughs> but from that point, the instructor turns around and says, from where we're standing right now, if you turn around, you can see where we talked about that songbird. Let's go there. Mm-hmm. And they walk back to that point. And he says, we had a conversation about that specific songbird here. And that became a place. It became a story. It says, from here, looking back in the direction we came, you can see the place where we thought we saw a deer track, but it was really a vole uh, hole. It, it was a den. And we had a conversation about the difference between moles, voles, and mice. And there was a story with that place. So they walked to that point. And from there he says, oh, we talked about a tree. And they walked. And without a map, without a compass, they had created a story. Yeah. And that mental map through that place, he said, I talked to him months later and I could recount that entire walk and all of those events. And I could still in my mind perfectly see that pathway through the woods where there was no trail. And the the natives of Australia, they have a way where they have mapped basically the entire continent and they're called song lines. Yes. And uh, this is a book my my father has recommended that Trevor and I review, so it's probably going to come up. <laughs> oh, we're going to do it. <laughs> but part of part of song lines is that the the Aborigines have created these in these paths of great distance, but the the path is mapped out in a story or a song, and that you can get from one place to another based on the story or song that describes its path. And and the amazing thing about that is that you could navigate even if you had never been to that place before yeah. because you knew the story. Because the story is the memory and the memory is the place. You've essentially coded yeah. a physical reality. Richard Nelson describes this. It's it's describing, it's, it's having a, uh, not a community, but ha- having a societal awareness of a place, of a of an event that you yourself hadn't experienced. But because you'd heard the story, you'd sang the song, you had created a mental map of that event, of that location, and you knew it, even though you'd never been there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> map encompassed you, damn. <laughs> I think something that really highlights that, so talking about that that inherent sense of direction, this is something that I've mentioned to you before that I've noticed. When I take my dog for a walk, sometimes I'll be out in a park um, with or, or a forest with trails in it that I'm not that familiar with. And then it gets dark. And just for fun, I kind of don't turn on my headlamp. Yeah. And even on a really overcast night where it is very, very dark, but I can still kind of make out some shapes. I, I, what I, I follow my feet. It's like the the less I try to concentrate on where I'm going or where the trail is, the more more accurately I seem to follow the trail. And what I attribute that to is, one, having been on a lot of trails in my life, but also the brain understanding that corridors don't naturally happen. That a trail is this 
unnatural thing that happens in a forest. And even at the, at the very edges of your perception, you're aware that, oh, that's kind of a, that's weird. That's different. And you know that that's where you should be going. Yeah, it's the, it's kind of the space between. Yeah. So there, uh, I've hiked parts of the long trail that often don't get a lot of traffic. And there are times when you're on a very defined trail, but you, uh, you'll go what seems like miles and not see the characteristic white blaze that is the trail marker. You know, you might, you might go half an hour or something and not see a blaze, but you're, you're on the trail. There are times when you're like this, I, I haven't seen a blaze, but you can, you can almost feel the trail. You know that that's where it goes. It's also why sometimes, especially in New England, where we were old farms, but is now often wooded, you'll walk through the woods and you'll, you'll kind of get this sense and you kind of look left and right and you can see old roadways or pathways. And it's mm-hmm. that unnatural clearing of trees. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see, sometimes you will feel a rock wall or an old foundation before you see it. Like you, you just you get this sense that yeah. there was a pathway here because the the line isn't natural to the woods. And you you kind of pick up on it and then if you you look into it, oh yeah, you can see oh this is where that road went. And so the I think this is the small jump that's really important that that kind of ties it all together where now let's imagine that you are fatigued, you're a little bit cognitively compromised, you haven't eaten enough. And you start to get these feelings. And now you're you are trying to make yourself feel better. And so you start to trust your gut more than you stop and think about what you should be doing next in this potentially precarious situation. And talking about the, the hippocampus further, he says, interestingly, the hippocampus, which tells you where you are and where you're going, if the map is right, does not control the seeking of a goal. The urge to get to a specific place, the drive toward a goal, appears to be emotional. That makes sense since the amygdala helps trigger action, especially as it relates to survival. Rats who have had the lateral nucleus of the amygdala destroyed lose their drive to get to a particular place. So, place and motivation are integrally connected, which may explain what keeps people moving when it would be safer for them to stay still. He says, you know who doesn't have this problem? Young children. I know. I love when he talks about the the survival cohort yeah. with the greatest percentage that survives is the ages of four to six. Yeah. So, and, but then one of the, uh, but then the least successful is seven to 12. <laughs> it's like, you're a child, a young child. You'll be fine. Oh, you're an adolescent. You're, you're going to die. <laughs> so, uh, there was a, director of a Northeastern climbing school that recognized this, heard a story about um, this, I think it was a seven or eight year old that was lost in the white mountains of New Hampshire and um, wasn't found and died partially because they got wet and cold and they kept wandering. So they started a program called stay put, stay dry And the, he brought it out to uh, schools and they did a, a kind of big public service and education piece with it. But they wanted to teach kids how to be like a four to six year old, <laughs> which was stay where you are and stay dry. It, when you're four, five, six years old, what you follow is the need to stay safe and warm. So you crawl inside of a tree or get underneath a big rock outcropping or 
you, you hang out. Not because you don't have the sense of, I need to find this place. You say, I need to stay here and someone will find me. And that's the thing to do. <laughs> well, but but only sometimes. And that's so the point truly. that he makes. And and I think what really the <laughs> the key here actually harkens back to, I can't remember what book it was I was reading, but a Zen master was asked, what is enlightenment like? And his very simple response was, when hungry, eat. When tired, sleep. And I think that's what that four to six-year-old mind is like. It's like, I'm cold, so I should get warm. Yeah, I'm tired, so I should rest. <laughs> and and the point is that the seven to 12-year-olds, they have developed enough of an executive function where they can supplant those impulses and say, no, I should keep going. But they haven't developed the judgment and experience of an adult to know when to ignore, basically, that logic and reason. They feel their way into it without thinking about it. And they can feel themselves into a into a bad place. So let's get back to the the story of the firefighter that they got lost while I was hiking. Gonzalez makes this point. He says, "Admitting that you are lost is difficult because having no mental map, being no place is like having no self. It's impossible to conceive because one of the main jobs of the organism is to adjust itself to place." That's why small children, when asked if they are lost, will say, no, my mommy is lost. The sense is, I'm not lost. I'm right here. But without a mental map, the organism can't go about its business, and it rapidly deteriorates. And and then he goes on shortly thereafter to make the point, anytime you find yourself thinking it's easier to go around a mountain than over one, you know there's trouble upstairs. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I have had that sensation of, I don't want to admit when I'm lost. <laughs> I, in, in the times that I've been lost, I know that it was probably 30 minutes prior that, or maybe an hour that I should have admitted to myself, you know what? I don't know where I am because I had that creeping suspicion. I had that feeling, that little tingle in the back of your brain that says, ah, something isn't right here. But then I ignored it and I continued to push on. And that was a mistake. And I think it's because it is hard for us to admit that we're lost. I mean, not to mention our ego being tied up in it. Oh, God, don't talk about that. (laughs) I am a competent outdoorsman, (laughs) goddammit. I, much like Daniel Boone, don't get lost. I am the leader. I know everything. Yes, I am the the decider. And I decide (laughs) that I am not lost. Yeah, that's been me more than once. And it, and it was the same with this guy, that this, this firefighter. It says that when he had set out on August 8th, Killip had been a healthy, competent, well-equipped hiker. His pack contained everything he needed to survive at least a week in the wild. Now, just over two days after taking a wrong turn off the Continental Divide, he was huddled on an icy mountainside, exhausted, hungry, badly dehydrated, injured, and dangerously hypothermic. What had begun as a small error in navigation had progressed step by innocent step to a grim struggle for survival. And that is the, I mean, that is the most important statement right there. You think that this, it's never going to be you, bro. It's you. This is you. And it's happening to you right now. Yeah. Step by innocent step. That's what happens. And his reason and emotion are incapacitated. 
and not by his own doing here, or maybe by his own doing, but <laughs> not by choice. Gonzalez writes, everyone who dies out there dies of confusion. There is always a destructive synergy among numerous factors, including exhaustion, dehydration, hypothermia, anxiety, hunger, injury. So, wood shock, which can now be explained in the more precise terms of neuroscience, led Ken Killip to frantic, poorly planned actions. Those stresses and actions incapacitated him even further in a tightening spiral until reason and emotion, instead of working in harmony to produce correct action, became like two drowning swimmers dragging each other down. Exactly. So he's not just fighting his mind, he's fighting his body at this point because he is cold, tired, hungry. He doesn't have the basic physiologic functions just to keep his body going, let alone to feed his brain where he can make good decisions. So his emotion, he's exhausted, and his reason, his ability to think, are impaired. You put the wrong mental map on top of that, and then a little bit of ego, <laughs> and it, it's no surprise. And you're guys. dead. <laughs> well, and and then actually, you you can't do anything else. You're just dead. <laughs> yeah, there, there is no next step. No. And sorry. <laughs> so let's talk about the the what the research says about about getting lost and people that get lost in the woods. Gonzalez writes, the research suggests five general stages in the process a person goes through when lost. In the first, you deny that you're disoriented and press on with growing urgency, attempting to make your mental map fit what you see. Uh, fucking check mark. (laughs) Check one. In the next stage, as you realize that you are genuinely lost, the urgency blossoms into a full-scale survival emergency. Clear thought becomes impossible and action becomes frantic, unproductive, even dangerous. In the third stage, usually following injury exhaustion, which this is my parenthetical statement, brought on by the frantic action you were taking when panicked. Truly. You expend the chemicals of emotion and form a strategy for finding some place that matches the mental map. It is a misguided strategy, for there is no such place now. You are lost. <laughs> your, your mental map is wrong. In the fourth stage, you deteriorate both rationally and emotionally, as the strategy fails to resolve the conflict. In the final stage, as you run out of options and energy, you must become resigned to your plight. Like it or not, you must make a new mental map of where you are. You must become Robinson Crusoe, or you will die. To survive, you must find yourself. Then it won't matter where you are. So be here now. The faster that you can get to that level of acceptance and then start to build a mental map based on reality, based on what is right in front of you, the faster that you will survive. Dude, this could apply to just like a life in general. You know what? I'm going to read it again. To survive, you must find yourself. Then it won't matter where you are. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm going to let y'all ruminate on that for a second as I take a moment. (laughs) I I thought we were done with finding things. Apparently not. Apparently not. Nope. Yet again, here we are. (laughs) And, Uh. and then he, he goes on to, to tell this story about a search and rescue expert who said, 
I have photos of a man who settled into a cozy bed of pine needles after removing his shoes, pants, and jacket and setting his wallet on a nearby rock, he told me. In the photos, he seems so peaceful. It's hard to believe he's dead. The photos have special significance for me because I help coordinate the search. Whenever I start to believe I'm some hot shit SAR expert, I pull the photos out and I'm over it. Yeah, that's a little dose of reality. That's a real strong dose of reality. It makes an interesting point here that some deaths that were attributed to just hypothermia could have just been uh, lost behavior, uh, you know, lost person behavior that yeah. went really sideways. You know, the kind of the people that settle down into this normal where it's like everything's hunky dory. I'm gonna take off my pants and fold them up and put my wallet down on this rock and just lie down. In in fairness, though, it's hard to tease that out from hypothermia because, as we know, we so, know how hypothermia affects your cognition and, and, and decision making abilities. This is a this is a true. I mean, this is synergistic at the, you know, the the best example of the definition. These are multiple things coming together that are creating an effect that is greater than any one of them separately. So, what happens with the firefighter? Well, this is the end of that story. Killip pulled himself together. He put on his fishing waders and started walking around to get warm. He made a fire and built a makeshift shelter using his garbage bags. Killip had entered the final stage that separates the quick from the dead. Not helpless resignation, but a pragmatic acceptance of, and even wonder at, the world in which he found himself. He had at last begun to model and map his real environment instead of the one he wished for. He'd worked out his own salvation. He had discovered the first rule of life. Be here now. That final stage in the process of being lost can prove to be either a beginning or an end. Some give up and die. Others stop denying and begin surviving. You don't have to be an elite performer. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to get on with it and do the next right thing. That passage right there, I want to like tape that to my face. I know. Tattoo it on my eyeball. <laughs> so be here now. Take ownership of that time and then start to rebuild that mental map with what's right in front of you. And again, that mental map you're creating now is based on reality because it's what's right in front of you, and then you expand from that. And, and we keep saying mental map, and I think that, that can be a little bit too broad. I mean, building a realistic mental map is something as, going back to the four or six-year-old, it's something as simple as, I'm cold. It, it start with what's on you, and that mental map for him is, put on a pair of waders and warm up. T- yeah. Take care of what's right in front of you. And part of that is taking stock of, um, taking, taking stock of what your resources are. And, you know, at this point, you've gotten to the point where the most important thing to you might be that, you know, that 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 all difficult to synthesize positive mental attitude, where it's, it's trying to find that that one thing that makes you keep going, where you you decide to say, all right, what do I have? What do I need to take care of? Let's take care of this moment now. You Let's just have to do the next right thing. Be here now. Small, st- and I guess that's you know that's the hard part. That's like. That is the beauty and the difficulty because the thing that leads you to death is a bunch of really small 
innocent steps. Stumbles. And the thing that leads you to life is a bunch of small innocent steps. But they're more deliberate. Yes. So if yes, they are absolutely. taking stock of what you have and saying, well, first, it, he describes it as the sometimes called the rule of threes. You can survive three minutes without oxygen. You can survive three hours without shelter, three days without water, three weeks without food. So taking care of your rule of threes. So, well, I got to stay warm and dry. Let's fix that. And then once that's done, I have shelter, I'm comfortable, I'm dry. Well, let's figure out some water and kind of moving on from there. In the Air Force survival school that he went to, they don't even think about food. It's like, yeah, we don't worry about it. Yeah. Pilots are going to be picked up within three to four days. We don't teach them how to get food because it uh, doesn't matter. You can go three weeks without it. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Which, again, is both a, that's both a good thing and a bad thing because that is that works so long as that's an accurate representation of the world. So long as you get picked up within three days. So long days. as you get picked up within three days, then it's a great plan. If, if you don't, well, now you got some fucking issues. Yeah. And this is the point that he makes when he says... One of the toughest steps a survivor has to take is to discard the hope of rescue just as he discards the old world he left behind and accepts the new one. There is no other way for his brain to settle down. Although that idea seems paradoxical, it is essential. I know that's what my father did in the Nazi prison camp. He made it his world. Dougal Robertson, who was cast away at sea for 38 days, advised thinking of it this way. Rescue will come as a welcome interruption of the survival voyage. Guaranteed he was British. <laughs> yes. That kind of subtlety and wit really only comes from the Brits. <laughs> but but that I think that goes back to the conversation of between staying put and making moves to go someplace. If you are making deliberate moves and taking deliberate action, that's different than just feeling it out and figuring it out as you go along. There's again, there's a difference between stepping and stumbling and making those deliberate steps is better than stumbling through the woods. The other thing that I think is essential about that is talking about the staying in place versus moving. Staying in place is a great way to jumpstart your apathy. <laughs> He's talking about uh, a survival instructor that he knows and he he was discussing some of the mistakes that the survival instructor felt he had made in his past. And he had led this one particular group of air force men out through a, a snowy field. And it says his class had been crossing a vast field of slushy snow, which made the going rough. The pilots began to suffer from fatigue, but Kearns kept driving them. I now realize that was a mistake. He said, as the temperature dropped, darkness came down like a curtain. Suddenly, Everybody wanted to give up. They just sat down and lost all their will. Apathy is a typical reaction to any sort of disaster. And if you're exhausted in a field of snow at sundown in the mountains, you're pretty much about to witness the simple disaster of nature separating you permanently from everything you know and love in this world. <laughs> I love that. That apathy can rapidly lead to complete psychological deterioration then you sit down and hypothermia sets in which produces more apathy a more profound psychological deterioration and ultimately 
death. I mean, those are the stakes. That's what we're talking about. We were talking about the difference between dying and living. And sometimes living means you don't sit down and accept this new... It's a very subtle distinction, isn't it? That difference between accepting your new mental map of the world and suddenly becoming complacent with it. Right. I mean, because you can say, oh, this is, you know, this is my life now. I better sit down and wait for rescue. Or you can say, this is my situation. Now, what do I do to self-rescue? Yeah. And that could be that you you have written a, a plan. You have left a, an itinerary with someone. You know that you're far off. You're not far off from that itinerary. And that someone expects to have you come home. And if you don't, they'll come looking for you. You're injured. You stay in place. You wait for someone to scoop you up. But it could also be, I'm in a plane crash. There's, I'm stuck under triple canopy jungle. There's no way I'm getting found. I have to be my own rescue. I have to get myself out. And I would say, err on the side of believing that no one's coming for you. For, for the pure sake alone of, it gives you something to do. Gives you a job. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's a difficult choice to make. And I think you have to, you, you have to use reason in those moments. So once you've settled in and gotten to the point where, you know, you, you're through that fifth step of survival and, or getting lost in this case, you know, maybe, maybe you've gotten, you've, you've been made lost. <laughs> um, but having that understanding that, well, well, I got to take stock of what I have. What are my options? What are my resources? What are the the reasonable chances that someone's going to find me here? And am I better off having myself be found, getting myself out? He, later on, he mentions this one passage, and I just want to read this real quick. Ultimately, it is the struggle that keeps one alive. What seems a paradox is simply the act of living. Never stop struggling. Life itself is a paradox, gathering order out of the chaos of matter and energy. When the struggle ceases, we die. Scientists have long observed the seeming mystery that you can will yourself to die. And that, that's really, as long as you are struggling to live, you're still alive. Yeah, I'd rather will myself to live. And, and, and so, but that is the necessary corollary, is that if you can will yourself to die, you can will yourself to live. And, and there are many examples in this book and just in life where that's true, that you can will yourself to survive, to but, live. But I also very strongly take on the, the, the qualification that you do not rise to the occasion. You fall back to your highest level of training. Yeah, the the map and compass doesn't just teach you how to use it. <laughs> you can't will yourself to know. <laughs> You're not Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. You can't just. I know kung fu. No, motherfucker, you don't. <laughs> You're gonna die. <laughs> yeah. At the at the end of the book, Gonzalez lays out twelve rules for survival, and I think really, I mean, that's when we talk about falling back to your highest level of training. That's what we're talking about here. It, taking all of this information and distilling it down into practical, actionable intel that can be applied real time when you're in one of these situations. So we've already established that one of the hardest parts of being in a survival situation 
is internalizing and acknowledging the fact that you are in a survival situation. That's, I mean, that's step number one. That comes before everything else. Because once you make that choice, that changes the prism through which you view problems and the choices that you make. Like, fuck the fact that you can't make a fire in this part of the world. It simplifies things. It really uh, does. It, to a certain degree, this is when people that are not bound by rules, <laughs> that, that understand... I don't that, know anybody like that. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, when, when you say to yourself, you know what? The, the rules of, of death don't apply to me right now. I, I am going to, I'm going to live and survive and fuck them. I'm yeah. going to build a fire right now. Exactly. And the, the only rule that you have in a life or death situation is this one. Live. Truly. That's your rule. Yeah. Live. Let's talk about his, his 12 rules. Um, number one is perceive and believe or look, see, believe. He kind of breaks these down so they're easy to remember. But that's what he's saying. Look, see, believe. And that's what we're talking about. Getting yourself out of denial and appraising your world for as it actually is and what your situation actually is. The other piece of that too, and he mentions this here, is that if you have this belief, for example, like I've broken my leg, that's it, I'm dead. If you have that belief, that can shut you down. A more accurate interpretation of that is, I broke my leg, this is just another factor I need to deal with. Number two, stay calm. Use humor and use fear to focus. That seems like a little bit of a, a contradiction. So in almost all of the kind of parenthetical asides here are contradictions. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's annoying, but they're true. It's that use humor, use fear. So fear is that that perfect focus and it brings you back to reality. Well, this this is the reality of the situation, but meh. What's going to happen, right? What am, what am I going to do? Die? It'll be fine. So being able to use humor in these situations, and it, it's any sort of stressful situation, using that kind of dark or gallows humor, that's that's what can make it make you able to be able to deal with that stress. Anybody that works in medicine, in the military, in law enforcement, you know exactly what we're talking about with, yeah. the, with the dark gallows humor. T- tell, the, tell the story. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just such a great anecdote. It's also <laughs> just a great example, too. But uh, so there's a ethicist who is also a comedian who wrote a piece um, for a medical journal about the ethics of gallows humor. And she opens the story, opens the article, the journal article, with a story about a friend of hers who was an emergency medicine physician. And during his residency, it's late at night, he and his colleagues, his other residents, order a pizza. And it had been delivered by the local pizza shop. It had been a little while and hadn't shown up when one of the nurses rushes in with a wheelchair with the pizza delivery guy who's been gunshot. So drag him into the resuscitation bay and they, they flog this guy in the best of ways. They open his chest. They start big IV lines and uh, they give him blood product. I mean, they, They do everything they can to save this man's life. He's a teenager and he dies. His injuries are are too serious, non-repairable, and he's dead. So they kind of walk out of the trauma bay. They're they're still exhausted. It's still the middle of the night and they're still hungry. And someone says, 
where do you think the pizza is? <laughs> so one of the residents walks outside and right next to where this kid got shot is their pizza. It's only been an hour. So they pick it up, they bring it into the, into the staff room. They all sit down and they're eating the pizza. And one of them says, what they're all thinking. They say, well, what do you think we should give him as a tip? <laughs> it's like, Oh God! So it's, uh, the number of jokes that I that I have so told about. Yeah, he he the resident, this physician now, emergency medicine physician, tells the story to his friend, who's the author of the article. He basically says, "This is something that has bothered me over a career of twenty five or thirty years. Uh, how was that appropriate in that moment? And how disrespectful of me as a physician to have said that, or to to have thought that that was really funny." <laughs> In that moment. And she basically says that that's not a joke that you would share with the the patient's mother. But behind closed doors, in private, when it's not, when it doesn't cause harm to the person, when the, when the intent is not to belittle that patient, but the intent is to bring levity to what is just a really painful, terrible situation and allows for you to process and truly survive that event and continue to provide high-quality emergency care to the other patients, then that is a therapeutic response. What you're doing with that dark gallows humor is allowing yourself to process what would otherwise be an event, a situation that your mind could not wrap itself around and continue to work as a high-level competent physician it's it's part of the the psychological immune system and there was an interesting study that came out a couple years ago that it shows that we we have actually a very good psychological immune system and that most people recover from very significant traumas after about four months now we're talking about things like the death of a child the death of a spouse most people return to a normative level of kind of day-to-day life after about four months and things like gallows humor for people that are constantly exposed to these stressful, awful situations is a way that the mind compensates for that. Because if you were to take that at just face value, what happened? They were tired and hungry, so they ordered a pizza. Because they ordered a pizza, that pizza delivery guy came close to the emergency department, got robbed, got shot. They tried to save him and failed. I mean, what are your, what are your alternative options there? Guilt? The the yeah. other emotions that attenuate on that are not helpful for the other patients that you need to take care of. And and you have a job. You have a responsibility to the other people in your department. Uh, I mean, I, I'm going on 15 plus years of emergency medicine, pre-hospital and in the emergency department. And there are events, there are situations that I've been exposed to that uh, if I didn't have the support of the people that I work with and if I couldn't to a certain degree laugh off what had happened would be crushing, would make me not able to be an effective resource, would, would remove me from my department. And to a certain degree, you got to be like, that sucked. Yeah. Let's tell a funny joke about it. <laughs> some some <laughs> of the miss it. <laughs> some of the funniest fucking things that have happened <laughs> were at the time really, really shitty. Oh, terrible. <laughs> Jeremy, no. <laughs> but the 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 ability to kind of uh, 
he describes it uh, when he's on an aircraft carrier. The, the safety brief is in what to him is a foreign language. He hears this whole safety brief and he's like, what the fuck are they talking about? And then it, he kind of is he's able to discern what, what they mean after being with them for a few weeks. But in the same way, you know, we, we use our own vocabulary, we use our own humor, and we banter back and forth in a group of people that work, work to save lives. And we wouldn't be able to do that job if we couldn't process that in the moment and then step away from a resuscitation, uh, a death, an arrest, and move right on to caring for someone with belly pain or a kid with a broken arm. And, and being able to step away from what is truly life or death to the mundane of medicine. And we owe every patient that capability. And if that's with a little bit of gallows humor, then that's how you get through. Seems like a fair price. Yeah. So going back to the rules, number one was perceive and believe. Number two is to stay calm using humor or using fear to focus. Number three is think, analyze, and plan. So this is where coming up with that next right step comes in. This is the, what am I going to do next? Not three weeks from now, not even two days from now. What am I going to do next? And and this this again goes back to things like, I am tired, so I should rest. Or I am cold, so I should find a way to warm up. These are important pieces and they can become part of a plan where, okay, after I'm warm, then I'm going to be able to gather some more wood for a fire or, you know, whatever the case may be, little steps. But once you have them laid out in a cohesive order, now you're starting to work on something. You're working towards something. So this is the distillation of be here now, where it's reframing your reality and saying, you know, this may be a hopeless situation, but my expectation, what I'm going to act on is success and survival. Rule number four. Take correct, decisive action. Be bold and cautious while carrying out tasks. Again, it's that that contradiction that he that he puts in the parentheses. But that's but that's what you need to take bold, take correct, decisive action. And that's if you decide that you're going to go do something, you go and do that thing. If you're going to build a fire, you build that fucking fire. But it's taking an insurmountable task and breaking it down into small small tasks, small jobs. It's maybe not focusing on yourself, but focusing on someone else who's also injured. And sometimes that focus on something or someone else is what gives you the purpose to survive. Even if they're not there, I think it's important to remember. So I, I used to always teach a, a, like a 10 essentials, kind of almost survival kit portion of the wilderness medicine courses that I did. And it, it was a little hokey, but I would often take a picture of my family and slide it into my emergency preparedness kit, you know, small pocket size survival kit. And as part of that, I'd say, you know, the, the most important thing inside of this kit, it's not the matches or the fish hooks or the, the Mylar space blanket. It's this picture. It's my wife and it's my kids. And for me, that's a reason to get through this event. It's a reason to get home. Number five, celebrate your successes. Take joy in completing tasks. So yeah, if you if you set out the, you know what I think of immediately. I think I, of uh, uh, Tom Hanks. I have made, I have made fire. fire. <laughs> oh, before you said that, he's going to say 
dumbass. Of course. But it's it is celebrating the things that if you I mean you are in a survival situation and then you've had enough wherewithal to make a decision about a task that needs to be executed and then you execute that task. Fucking good for you. I mean, mental high five because that's awesome and it's exactly the sort of thing that's going to keep you alive. It it prevents that descent into hopelessness. Never never tell yourself that's not good enough. Yep. Rule number six, count your blessings. Be grateful you're alive. I'm. I, that's a, fundamentally, in that situation, you could have died in the plane crash. You could have died when the boat crashed. You could have died three hours ago, but you didn't. You are alive right now, and that is something to be grateful for. Number seven, play. Sing, play mind games, recite poetry, count anything, do mathematical problems in your head. This is something I'm bad at. I, we, we talked about this earlier. This is, this is what I need to focus on. Um, and may, maybe throughout life, but certainly in a survival situation. I become so task-oriented, so focus on this, do this, then that, then this, then that, and just working that problem that I sometimes forget to... The example we talked about was on uh, Histories Alone. I think it was season two. Uh, one of the guys who does such a great job, who seems to really thrive in this situation, he makes a fucking ukulele. Yeah. He, sits, yeah. He's, he strings up fishing line, and he makes a musical instrument. And he's singing songs, and he, he's, he's using hit the artistic side of his brain. It's a totally different side of the brain than just that analytical problem focused. It, yeah, because the the analytical part of your brain can tell you what your problems are, but the creative side of your brain can tell you how to solve them. It can come up with the solutions. So you have to keep that from atrophying. You have to keep that from dying out there in the wilderness where you become so obsessed on your problems and your next task. Play. And it, and it provides calm. It provides that center. And on a chemical level, it also produces things like endorphins and oxytocin and other beneficial hormones that your body is going to need if it's going to make it through that next that next step. It's really easy for us to get focused on epinephrine and norepinephrine, kind of those stress response hormones as being the reason why we get through these events. It's just, it's all fight or flight, tooth and nail. But you, you need a little bit of the happy juice, too, to get you through. Because I enjoy poetry, I just noticed a little paragraph right here that, that he talks. Uh, Stockdale Stockdale's a famous figure in U.S. military history. He was kept at the Hanoi Hilton for seven years. years. Yeah, whole different conversation. But he cites him here. He says, Stockdale says, love of poetry was an important quality for enduring. You thirst to remember, he wrote. The clutter of all the trivia evaporates from your consciousness and with care you can make deep excursions into past recollections verses were hoarded and gone over each day the person who came into this experiment with reams of already memorized poetry was the bearer of great gifts and if you don't memorize poetry think about the stories that that you enjoy rule number eight see the beauty if you are going to die and this is how it's going to end for you. What a great way to die. Beautiful blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pardon me, I gotta go grab a tissue. Yeah. 
but but that is i mean really the seeing the beauty i i hope that i would have the mental wherewithal to do that to have the courage to see the beauty in a situation like that and maybe that starts with maybe again that's just training maybe that maybe you train yourself to see that in the mundane pieces of life when it's not a life or death situation you know look look around you what's beautiful right now the uh conversation we have with Mike Loria where we talk about that perception can be like a flashlight it can either be incredibly focused for detailed work or kind of on a a flood beam for awareness it's easy to set up your tasks and to turn on that spot function where you focus on a task but it also helps to open up that flood to be able to look around you to have a greater awareness when you do that, not just have an awareness of everything that's pertinent to your survival, to the resources and things that you need, but also the awareness of the place that you are. The, we talk about survival often being in the wilderness. Well, we go to these places on our own because they're beautiful. Uh, being Im- immersed in the, the deepest skies, the most beautiful stars, amazing weather, just the mountain geography, like you can appreciate that place for its beauty, even when it's trying to kill you. <laughs> because regardless of your place on the planet and whether or not it's coming to an end, it doesn't change the fact that what's around you is beautiful. Yeah. Rule number nine, believe that you will succeed. Develop a deep conviction that you'll live. That, I, that so important to, maybe even if it's like a mental trick that you play on yourself, even if, because it's the, it's, I guess having faith, right? Have faith that you will succeed. Even if you don't believe it, just, I mean, make that a core part of who you are deep down. A consistent trait among survivors, something he says comes up over and over again, is that they pray. Even if they don't believe in God, if they don't have strong religious convictions, Survivors pray. They have faith. They they get down on their hands and knees and they talk to something or someone and they oftentimes they beg for help, but they they say, you know, this is my situation. I, I give myself unto thee. And part of that faith is that they they take strength from that and they are able to survive because they they find that kind of that inner calm. And, and that goes right into rule number 10, which is surrender. Let go of your fear of dying. Put away the pain. I'm just going to read what he, what he writes after that. He says, survivors manage pain well. Lauren Elder, who walked out of the Sierra Nevada after surviving a plane crash, wrote that she stored away the information, my arm is broken. That sort of thinking is what John Leach calls resignation without giving up. It is survival by surrender. Joe Simpson recognized that he would probably die, but it had ceased to bother him, and so he went ahead and crawled off the mountain anyways. That's awesome. Stockdale describes, again, that Vietnam fighter spent seven years in the Hanoi Hilton. He describes something that can help you survive, something that can help you deal with that situation, is to practice discomfort, to find ways to experience pain and discomfort Prior to that event. <laughs> oh, I hate to break it to you. That wasn't Stockdale. That was Epictetus. 
Uh, so in, who we stole it from? <laughs> so in in Stockdale talks, if you if you read about Epictetus in um, kind of modern resources, they often mention Stockdale because he says that Epictetus writing helped him survive. Tim Ferriss, who has a very popular podcast, calls this fear setting, where he basically recreates the condition that he fears the most. Let's say he's penniless and he can only live off of oatmeal and he has like a sleeping bag to his name. He says that every every now every so often he'll put himself in that position and say, Was this the condition that I so feared? You practice. What did the Spartans do? How did they inflict pain on themselves? They uh they allow themselves to be bitten by foxes. Yeah. They would also uh whip themselves in the face with olive branches Ugh. to train their faces to not respond to painful stimuli. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking hardcore. Yeah. Rule number eleven. Do whatever is necessary. Be determined, have the will and the skill. Uh, that kind of rolls back to what we had mentioned before about the your your number one rule in a survival situation is live. And rule number 12 is never give up. Let nothing break your spirit. This is a rule that I have come across a lot, especially in my time in the military. It gets hammered on so much. The never give up. And I always had an issue with it. I think I still do. That that dictum of never giving up. It's like, well, maybe what you're doing is stupid and you should give up. <laughs> like never quit sounds great, but maybe you should quit what it is that you're doing because it's dumb. And I think saying never give up is too easy, but but the underlying message is that you don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on who and what you are internally. What you're doing may not be the right course, but for who you are inside of yourself, never give up on that person. Never give up on what you could be. Never give up on living. That's what you don't give up on. Gonzalez writes this as finding opportunity in adversity. Saying this is an insurmountable problem, but if I beat it, I'm doing all right. And I I think about some of the things we've discussed before, like the conversation of death and deciding to die. I don't think that I don't, I don't look at that as giving up. And the reason why is because it's on your own terms. Exactly. Even if it's inevitable, it's going to be on your own terms. That's the difference. It's like, I think giving up is that Okay. I am just now going to let context do what it wants to me. It's just like, no, you don't, you don't lie down and you don't lie down to die. You choose. You, you choose that this is how I am going to die. Yeah. And then you are true to yourself. Then you have not given yeah, you, up. Yeah, you don't give up and die. You make the conscious decision that this is the time when your life has reached its end. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. You can review the podcast on iTunes, subscribe, whatever you'd like to do. If you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let us know. That, that interactive feedback, that revision loop of self-improvement is essential for us making a, a better quality podcast. And that's really what we want to do. We want to put out good quality content in the world. So, you know, if you have suggestions on what we can do better or things that you like that we're doing, please let us know. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, 
There are a couple different ways you can do it. First, if you'd like to get the books that we talk about for yourself, you can access the Lycos reading list through the Lycos Designs website, which is www.lycosdesigns.com forward slash podcast. We'll post links to the books on Amazon and going through us to get your books is a great way to support us. Now, the disclaimer. We don't do the podcast to talk about Lycos Designs. We started it to explore topics that talk about the relationship human beings have with the natural world, about human beings in nature and, and by proxy, human nature. And we wanted to build up a community of folks that are invested in that same idea that want to have those same kinds of conversations. So if you want to know more about what we do as a company, please feel free to check out our website, but we probably won't be going into it too much on the podcast itself. Furthering that idea of community, you can connect with us on Instagram, at Lycos Designs, Facebook, the Lycos Designs website. I personally read all the feedback that gets sent to us. So if you have something that you'd like to share, please know that it will be heard. Matt, final takeaways. Gonzalez writes in the opening of the book, the maddening thing for someone with a Western scientific turn of mind is that it's not what's in your pack that separates the quick from the dead. It's not even what's in your mind. Corny as it sounds, it's what's in your heart. We push skills and tools and mindset a lot on this podcast. And mindset, to a certain degree, is what's in your heart. It's what you make of it. And the only rule is you have to survive. And with that in mind, go outside, stay there, and find your inner wolf. Do you have a good idea of what you want to talk about? When when uh, you first switched to me? Yeah. Just like, what are your reactions to this book? <laughs> that one? That's not what I sound like. Well, no, that's what I sound like. <laughs> what are your reactions to the, uh, Yogi Bear? <laughs> hey, boo-boo. Hey, that's heavy. <laughs> that's dang. Heavy. <laughs> I read this book, I was like, dang. Uh, 